and continue to, to look into this great mystery that God has displayed before humanity and the cross. And as we do, I just want to consider uh, an analogy that kind of parallels this issue of self-denial. In our culture, if we were to kind of take a, uh, some stats, and, and that, in fact, they have done stats on finances in the American culture, and things aren't always what they appear. Uh, when you go to suburbia and places where people have two nice new vehicles, a huge house, and all these outward things they have, the clothes they wear, the food they eat every day, for 25 bucks at a restaurant. Very often, more often than not, those people are living on credit. Statistics show. They're swiping a card, they don't even have to think about it. And then you go to the people that live in like a smaller town, we've got a place called Richfield up the road here, and they've lived there for years, and they got this nice little cozy home, and they're wealthy. They could drop $20,000 in a moment because they live wisely and they've stored up their finances and they've lived lightly and they haven't indulged and they don't just swipe a credit card. They actually track their money. They actually budget and they plan ahead. They actually live for their grandchildren and their children and the future generations to come instead of indulging every moment for themselves. There's going to come a day for the people that live by credit cards where they're not going to have the ability to recover their debt and it's going to mar their reputation forever. Believers, do we even understand the first step of coming before the cross as Stephen so humbly displayed in his message the mercy of the cross, self-denial. There comes a point where you swipe that card that you negligently don't keep track of, and it's denied. There's nothing left in your account. The antithesis of our call as believers is to indulge and to be selfishly ambitious. And it's deep. Those toxins run deep in us. As Stephen mentioned, it's coming from within to defile us. It's not this world that in itself defiles us. The devil doesn't make you do it. It's not your parents' fault, though they've had influence on you. It's not your grandparents' fault. It's not MTV's fault that teenagers are like how they are. It's the internal problem of humanity that makes MTV what it is, that makes the culture what it is. Every human being must come to terms with this fact that we are inherently selfishly ambitious, striving for our own ends, and until we come to the cross, we have no ounce of love in us. The gospel love that Jesus speaks of and the apostles speak of is, in one term, self-denial. Jim Elliott how many are familiar with him and his life and his mission and this quote? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot save to gain what he cannot lose. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The question I have today is, are we embracing and pursuing a life of self-denial or are we just plain in denial? That's the question of the day.
Are we just in plain denial of our depravity, our, our deep, inerrant selfishness and evil, which is the opposite of love? That's the first question. The second one, letter B, the insanity of our human soul is our relentless attempt to preserve a reputation and our short, frail life, as well as our short, frail life. Self-preservation. We're fighting so hard for a reputation, Jesus says in John 5 and in John 12. You seek the praise of man and neglect the praise and glory of the only God. How blind are we that we're trying to prove ourselves before humanity who is a drop in the bucket, a breath in the nostrils, and the glorious God who gives us breath, we neglect and we forget. We judge by how man judges. What's praised in the eyes of man is detestable to God. Do we get it? It's detestable in the eyes of God. The things that man praises. Jesus calls these man's interests. Letter C. In short, we resist applying the cross daily to God's process of changing us. Jesus calls this man's interests. Turn to Mark 8, verse 31 to 38. And Jesus walking with his disciples, his teenagers who he'd walked with for three years, and in the midst of it, he began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man, the figure in Daniel who is coming back in the clouds, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the ones that should have it together and should know it the best, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. <laughs> clearly, boldly, articulately. This is what is going to happen. I am your master. And Peter, in his zeal and audacity, says what? He took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning around and seeing his disciples, very intentional here, to all of them, to understand, I'm not just talking to Peter, I'm talking to all of you. And he'd turn in our room today and he'd look at all of us in the eyes and saying, to his disciples... He says, if anyone, or sorry, he rebuked him and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. He's saying, God's interested in crucifying you. I'm walking this path and giving good, clear footsteps for you to put your feet into. He wasn't taking it all for us. And then saying, now, coast in your life of your free credit card access, limit credit, unlimited credit for the rest of your life. He's saying, now walk in the form and manner of self-denial that I'm laying out before you very clearly before your eyes. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You have man's security, comforts, and self-preservation, and reputation, and perspective in mind. And they're completely de detestable in my eyes, for I look on the heart. And I want all of it to be for me. That's how God looks. And what he says is, God's interests are completely stark contrast to man's. And he says, in verse 34, he summoned the multitude with his disciples. Okay? Now let's picture Jesus 
let's try to get a picture of Jesus in our mind of a mixture of strength and sternness, yet approachability and compassion, okay? When you speak, I'm speaking pretty strong words here, but it's because we're human beings and we need to hear really clearly what the truth says. You don't speak strong, bold words in a message to try to prove a point or have control of the crowd. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Let's get a picture of Jesus. He would stand in our midst and he'd be stern and strong for our own heart's sake. Not because he's shaking a big stick at us, okay? But at the same time, the draw of Jesus, look what he does. He pulls in the masses. It doesn't say he pulled in the pious and the few elect rulers. They had already determined they wanted to kill him. But the masses of people were drawn to this man. Though they had the same wickedness as the rulers that had determined to kill him, they knew they had it. So Jesus comes to his disciples and he pulls in the multitudes and what does he say? If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's loaded. But he's making it clear. He's saying like the same thing. Come after me like I'm going. He hadn't died yet. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. He's just making it clear. He's like saying the same thing like four times. Do you understand? This is the way I'm going. If you're mine, come with me. And when you come, forget yourself behind you. Leave it. Be on a journey of denying your own impulses and desires. In fact, here, put this on your back because this is the only instrument that's going to work those things out of your life. So keep it on your back and keep following me because I've got one on my back too. And watch me do it first and now prepare your whole life to keep in my steps with that same instrument on your back denying yourself and then one day, after you see me rise again and sit at the throne of glory on the right hand of the Father, that's where you fix your eyes, where I am. And I'll mediate and intercede your whole life until you actually enter the finish line. You pass the goal and you join me in glory. But I warn you, don't even try to pick up that glory until you finish the race like me. Follow me. Put your cross on. Deny yourself and keep close to me. Eat my dust. Stay right at my sandals. Don't move away. Cling to me. I'll show you the way of glory and honor from my Father. Let the cross strip away all false honor and praise of man so that you actually begin to despise the praise of man because you so treasure the voice of the Father that says, well-pleasing good son. And you live as a son. You walk by the Spirit and not by fear because God makes you tremble and man doesn't. Beloved, when man makes us tremble, we don't proclaim the gospel to them. 
When God makes us tremble, we tell everyone about his message. Why do we fear man? It's because we don't fear God. This is second grade teaching. We don't fear God, so we fear men. He is your dread, Isaiah 8 says. It also says, in the fear of the Lord, there's great confidence, and his children will have a refuge. So you're supposed to be terrifyingly confident in God. Terrified that you're confident, and confident that you're terrified by God. That's the only thing that keeps us safe. If we're not afraid of God, we'll never run to Him. Isn't that weird? We need the fear of the Lord. We need the cross on our back. So number two, the impossibility. The impossibility of choosing to be first while you fellowship with other people in the gospel. This statement needs a lot of qualification. The impossibility of choosing to be first, all about me, when you fellowship with others in the gospel. I'm not talking about drinking coffee and eating cake in a foyer of a church. I'm talking about fellowshipping Joining in, koinonia, the Greek word is this, intermingling and partaking of the same thing together, like you're lost in each other. You and your brother are one. Therefore, any offense in you affects him, any offense in him affects you, so you're able to tell each other, ah, something doesn't feel right in us right now, because we're united in a fellowship That's got to change, and that's why church discipline happens, because you're one, and when leaven is in the church, it touches all the church. Eventually, that's got to be put out, or the whole church corrupts. Fellowship is a serious thing. It's being accountable to our own depravity, and being provoked to actually love and do good deeds. You've got to stay close to people. It's impossible to be arrogantly choosing to be first if you're really in fellowship in the gospel, the laying down your life. It's impossible. Mark 9, 30 through 37. And from there, they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. Crowds, stay away. We need a private place. Disciples, my followers, do you understand? I am going to die. They will kill him. And when he's been killed, he'll rise three days later. What? You're going to die and you're going to come back to life. How was their response? They did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him. (laughs) And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? (laughs) As if he didn't know. 
But they kept silent, <laughs> embarrassed, for on the way they discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Can you imagine? <laughs> Just put yourself in their shoes. Be one of them for a moment. The Lord of glory is walking among you talking about how he's going to die. And you have the audacity to say, and just confess, you've done it, this kind of a thing. You put your foot in your mouth and you realize who you really are for a moment. And you're talking about who's the best and the greatest. <laughs> Clueless. Blind. <laughs> Humorously Painful. And they kept silent. And 35, and sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know you all desire to be first. But you're going about it through wickedness. You're in sin denial instead of self-denial. You're in suffering denial instead of trying to embrace glory now. You were made for glory and nobility and honor. You were made to rule in life. But guess what? It won't work now. We're corrupt. We can't handle power or even a little bit of money. And we want to put a crown on? And we want to pull down our inheritance now? I'm sorry. But our inheritance, according to the Word of God, is incorruptible, imperishable, secured in heaven for those who are kept by the power of faith for the last day. If we were given it now, it would be corrupted. We will rust with our money if we hold to it now. The greatest most valuable thing in the world is going to rust or be eaten by, mo by moths. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. Only a resurrected body could be an inheritance imperishable, a restored earth. If we plant down in this earth as a believer and turn the gospel into a license for our glory, then we've sidestepped the cross. He declares to them, If you want to be first, you'll be last of all, and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one child like this in my name. Can a child help your reputation? Maybe among mothers. How non-self-promoting to be able to pay attention to a little child. Who pursues, really, children's ministry as their final end game goal in life? Maybe it's a patronizing frosting on your resume, but that's not the goal of anybody, inherently to be honored for children's ministry in the age to come when nobody knew about it. But Jesus is saying, if you don't understand the gold in the lowest possible 
place in life, if you don't understand the honor of a little innocent child, then you're not very innocent yourself. And he says, he took him and he receives him, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. You understand, Jesus is saying, you want to get to the Father, you got to come through me. But if you want to come to me, you have to come through a child. Because they're a mirror for you. How you feel about little children disrupting your prayer meeting is a major litmus test to the condition of your heart. How you feel about a mom carrying five kids across the shopping mall how you look at her and say, doesn't she know how that happens? Doesn't she know how those things come about? How can she even afford that? I bet she's on welfare. What do you think that does in the heart of God? But this is the test of our heart in everything. I'm not talking about children's ministry. I'm talking about standing before the Lord as a 12-year-old child at His throne on Judgment Day. You. Me. Do we even know what love is when we throw around the mantra of how it's all about love? We just got to love? Do we have any idea what it means to propagate your life in love for the gospel? To give your life completely as a seed to be crushed? Do we have any idea? We don't. We're mostly in denial rather than self-denial. Mark 10, verse 23 to 31. Jesus, looking around, says to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men, it is impossible. That's back to our point of the impossibility of choosing to be first. And this leads into our next point. With men, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and farms, along with persecutions, so that you don't depend or trust in those things or in this age, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And last, first, believers. So Jesus declares to us point three in your notes. The possibility of choosing to be last while you fellowship with other people in the gospel. I didn't say the sealed guarantee. I said the possibility 
of choosing to be last while you fellowship. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole point of church fellowship is can we come to a place refined in character, broken down in humility, where we consider others more important to ourselves. we get this ambition dealt with, and we learn to love people well in the gospel. That is, the church built on and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. We don't graduate the gospel. One of the most heartbreaking things that happened to me was when I was preaching a message one time about the gospel of Christ crucified, and I finished, and somebody came up to me at the end and said to me, Bro, that's a good, simple message for the immature. I didn't say anything. I just said thanks and walked away. That is the demise in the church, that we think that the cross is the one step to our success in this life. And we take up the good life now on the road to hell, paved with good intentions. So we think they're good, but they're completely sullied with arrogance and selfish ambition and vain conceit and heaping up reputation and denying the God-man hanging on a tree. How does Christianity turn into the very opposite of what the call really is? The human heart. In denial. Rather than self-denial. A sidestepping of the cross. And going another way. That can dress up like the narrow way, but it's the broad way. There's a way that seems right to a man... But in the end, the bottom drops out like a sinkhole in Florida. Who expected it to happen? There was a man in Florida sleeping in his bed a month ago, and a sinkhole around Tampa happened, and his bed went down, and they heard him screaming to his death. His brother went in to try to help him, and he almost fell in himself. He had to wait for the state trooper to come by and pull him out. Guys, a sinkhole. Who would expect that your bedroom would become a sinkhole hundreds of feet down and you would die? This is the sobriety of the hour we live in. If we're in denial, suddenly the bottom will drop out one day. If we're embracing self-denial, there is a rich fellowship yoked to Jesus. Or we manufacture fellowship with Jesus through our expression, our self-expression in what we call worship. Our church fellowship that really is just a neediness for us to feel okay. Everything can be for the wrong motive. If it's not self-denial propelling us into the cross and causing us to actually turn from selfish ambition to love's ambition. So there's a possibility, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul says this bold statement in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Do nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition or empty conceit. Nothing. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. For real. Dave, you are more important than me. In fact, after this, I want to talk to you about something that I realized I wasn't thinking of you as more important than me. I seriously do. 
there, this, is, this is what it's all about. Where we can actually, like my, my brothers, I've had a couple, three brothers <laughs> during this week simply say, Hey, bro, I'm sorry that I said that. That might have came across as this, and I don't want to do that. I mean, this open exchange of keeping short accounts and not taking for granted that we can use humor to feel better about ourselves, even in subtle ways, and discount other people, even in subtle ways. And that might not have hurt that other person, but to have a tender enough heart like David, who cut off Saul's corner of his shirt in the cave and, and, didn't, and, and felt bad for doing something... Like that. Wouldn't, wouldn't you rather be on that side where you're like, bro, I'm sorry if, if this offended you. Even if they say no a hundred times, at least you're keeping your heart in check. Even if it didn't offend them a hundred times. This is so important that we walk in tenderness and humility in our relationships. And this is what it's all about. This is what he's saying by not doing anything out of selfish ambition. Do not merely look out for... I love the word in the Greek for look out for. It's skopos. So don't use these binoculars and be looking for your interest. Don't be scoping out your own interest constantly. But personal, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude or mind or affection in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we know he goes on to explain the way of the cross. Look at James 3. Again, James is like a mirror. The whole letter of James is like, look in the mirror and shriek in horror at the change that needs to still happen in you. James 3, verse 13 to 18. Who among you is wise? America. Intellectual. High-minded. Information-based attainment. Let's lay it low. We all have it. Who among us is wise? Oh, I know. I've done that. I've been there. Bought the t-shirt. Oh, I know what you mean. So quick to talk about what we know and what we've experienced rather than to listen to the other person. I'm guilty of this. Listen to what they have to say. Quit trying to prove that you have something. They don't care. They're sharing their heart. Share yours by listening. This is fellowship. This is something I need change in. James 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness or meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Confess it. Get it out in the open. Quit trying to dress up Christian. Be real. Oh, that was ambitious of me. I'm sorry. Right away. Don't sit on it and groveling in shame and condemnation. Tell your brother, I'm sorry right away. Be released from that. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder or lack of peace and every evil thing. Every evil thing. That would include all our own sinful inclinations and outworkings and every demonic force 
is for and in and reestablishing and strengthening you in ambition. Ambition is ugly. Don't have time to share, but I have a friend, we have a friend common here that had an amazing dream about God confronting ambition and how it can't be stopped. It's blind, it's death. It blinds us, it deafens us. It turns us out of the way of God's mercy. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, or willing to submit. We could say really simply, willing to listen intentionally to someone that's talking to you. What kind of a simple thing should that be? But it's fruit that God has to work in us because we're so self-consumed and absorbed and blinded. So insecure and concerned about our own reputation and confidence. It's full of mercy (laughs) and good fruits. Unwavering. It doesn't hesitate. Wisdom. It's not insecure and holding back. It's, bro, what do you need? It's unwavering. It's ready to go. Without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, you're sowing to the Spirit to reap resurrection when you live in love, when you deny selfish ambition. The resurrection of the age to come, not some kind of spiritualized form of, I reached another resurrection plane in this age. Not that, no. The work of the Spirit in us, provoking and providing us with fruit to offer in that day, which will translate into cashing in for a resurrected body, a crown, a throne, a restored earth. We could go on and on and on and on. We have no idea how great our inheritance is in the age to come stored up. We have a taste of it by the Spirit of God. And it provokes us to lay aside everything to cash in in that day. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8, this one's a stinger. It's not this flowy, levy, romantic, sappy chapter that we've made it out to be. It's really gory, if you ask me. It's painful. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8 too familiar for us. It's very, very much too familiar. Let's let it not be familiar in this moment. Consider yourself dead and needing God and consider what this verse, these verses would say. Love is patient, long-suffering, puts up with other people's stuff. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly or rude, It does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own, but it trusts that it will be provided without having to seek it. Love does not seek its own. It gives and gives and gives and knows that the blessing will come in the giving, not in the looking for your own. It gives. It's not provoked easily, right? It's not easily provoked It does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Never fails. Paul goes on in chapter 16 and says something else. 
Very interesting. In verse 8 of chapter 16, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth and says, But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened me, an open door to the Gentile nations, that they be saved. And there are many adversaries. There's an open door for the gospel to go forth, and many oppose. Praise God for opposition, or we'd set up our throne here. We'd arrive here. He says, oh, you want to be faithful to me? I've got a few enemies for you. So look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 16. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong and do great exploits. No. Not yet. That's coming once we've been crucified enough. Let all that you do be done in love. Prepare yourself for your cross. Proven character produces a hope that does not disappoint. Then the love of God fills your heart by the Holy Spirit. But if you want to sidestep the process, you can't have that. It only comes one way. Let all be done in love because you know your ambition so well. Crucify it. Come to terms with it and wage war in love. Love is our warfare. Love cannot fail. Who cares what the devil is doing to tempt you, to provoke you, what we call warfare, opposition? Who cares? Praise God for it. He gave us a cross for a reason. That's the only thing that stripped the principalities and powers for Jesus, and it's the only thing that will strip the principalities and powers over us. Is the cross applied to our life, to our heart, changing our character, provoking us to lay our life down. We don't want to lay our life down. It's a nice catchphrase in our culture of ease, but it's not being applied until that day when we actually see what the result of having postured ourselves for years toward the cross will produce in us in endurance when we get our head put on the chopping block. So a true exchange of humility among believers. Letter number four. It's a taking up of our cross daily. This is how we display love's way of ambition. So God's saying, put aside selfish ambition and be ambitiously loving for others' interests. This is how we display a vibrant witness to unbelievers. They're pro provided with a stark contrast to the interest of man, as we mentioned above earlier, in this present evil age. John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, but it's not really old, but it's kind of new, and it's not really old, it's not really new. It's always what God's ever wanted, but we just don't understand it. And I'm going to display it to you even more clear. I, your Lord and Master, who's been given everything from the Father, who's going to go back to Him, I'm going to lay aside my robe. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to dry them. And blessed are you if you not only understand these things, but you do them. And then He says, You will show the world that you're my disciples. They will know. They will perceive. They will experience before their eyes. Those are Jesus' disciples.
And this is a this is a miracle before the eyes of the world. This is not being done very well right now. So we have to kind of dress it up in a lingo, like, you know, they just want to see our love. But Jesus was talking about the kind of love that washes feet, that lays its life down for his brothers. That kind of love. This is love. Not that we love, but that he loved. He sent his own son to atone for our sins. God so loved the world, he gave his own son, that none would perish if they believe. But 1 John 3.16, this is love that we lay our life down for our brothers. That's our application after reception of John 3.16. Now we lay our lives down, 1 John 3.16. This is the call of the believer. Letter C, embracing this process, pun intended, embracing this process of God in our life. We need to know it's a process that is in progress, but not at all done. The finished work of the cross is a glorious reality, especially for Jesus, because He's actually sitting there having finished His work on the cross. But to steal that success of Jesus and to make it our current status in our depraved nature still remaining. We still sinned yesterday and we will today. And some of you are sinning right now because in your heart you're going, I'm doing pretty good today. Then who are we to say the finished work of the cross is finished with us? Do we not see that Jesus said it's his steps that we walk in? What do we interpret that to mean? How do we reinterpret Paul and Peter, not to mention Jesus in the Old Testament? How can we think that Paul didn't quite get it right and that we can somehow be beyond Paul and realize we don't need to fast, pray, etc.? We got into that yesterday. But Jesus finished something so that he could set the goal at the end of the race to show us this is the goal. Now run and throw off what hinders the rest of your life. And I'll give you the reward of my obedience. Did you hear that? I'll give you the reward of Jesus' own obedience. He said, if you run this race to the end, faithful throwing things off of sin then I will give you the reward of my obedience. Not of your obedience. Of His obedience. This is the wage and war against self-righteousness. This is warfare. We don't have anything to offer Jesus but Him. God is only pleased with one sacrifice, the one He provides. Jesus doesn't delight in sacrifice, but in showing mercy. And if we understand mercy, our life will be a sacrifice that's pleasing. But if we're trying to earn God's mercy, then our sacrifice is disgusting because we don't even know our need. It smells in his nose. He even says that. I can't stand all your church gatherings and your music because the sacrifice is blemished. 
Offer your governor one like that and see how he goes for it. You can't even please man well. I'm the only God. Do you think you have anything to offer me? But I delight in mercy. I'm setting you up for a good failure. Just fail well. You have nothing in you. Turn to me, all ends of the earth, and be saved. Don't pretend. Don't hide. There is no such thing as a secret. And the Holy Spirit, the original pilgrim himself, is looking across the earth and he's going, who wants to give everything to me and I'll give you strong support? Nothing do we have to give. He says, we say, I should say, in the body of Christ. It's all about God. It's all about God. It's all about God. It's all about God. But when we come to the place of talking about righteousness, we claim to have it. In so many subtle ways. It's all about God. It's all about God. What we mean is, this is a good experience. This feels good. This Christian culture I live in. At times... We come into this place of our experience being magnified above pleasing God. Because we don't want to walk in condemnation, we bought into the psychology of our age. We think that the in Christ passages mean that we are Christ. We forget that Jesus said, I am the shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. They only make sense linked to the I am statements, the in Christ statements. Self-denial is at the core of saying Jesus is the I am and in Him is my only hope. So, in essence, what we might consider assets and credentials in the, temp in the temporal suddenly become liabilities when we look in light of the day of the Lord and the cross Whatever would hinder a growing revelation in this rich knowledge of Jesus is considered our worst enemy. This is our anti-boast. Look what Paul declares in closing here in Philippians 3. Close up here and we'll go to lunch and try to eat our food after thinking about this trembling reality of our life. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things have counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, uh, perceiving Him rightly, for whom I have suffered 
suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish or dung in order that I may gain Christ future tense and may be found in Him future tense not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law future tense but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection that He attained to and that Paul makes very clear in the next verses He hasn't yet and the fellowship of His sufferings He suffered alone, I suffer with Him. What a gracious, gracious merciful God. Being conformed, he, know, he knows we'd lose heart if we didn't fellowship with Him. Being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead future, not that I have already obtained it adamantly or have already become perfect, but I press on or I run the race with all I have in order that I may lay hold and obtain, the word is to obtain and actually possess it, that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. His Spirit told me He's raised and I'm born again called to press on in the race. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I do not have it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, all the system of self-righteousness, it's done. And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the finish line, the goal, the scopos. Setting your eyes, your interest on others, and setting it on the goal. That's our scope in life. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude. God will reveal that also to you. It's okay. Keep going. It's a process. It's a process. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. The type of the apostolic pattern. It's called cruciform. Brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ and they think they're believers. They have good intentions. But they're moving away from the hope held out in the gospel. Slowly but surely, Colossians 1.23. They're moving away from taking up their cross. Somehow thinking the work of the Spirit has trumped that and brought in the age to come. But they were angry at their wife yesterday. And a hundred other things. And they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end or goal... How do you like that for a goal of your life? Destruction. Whose God is their appetite? Self-indulgence, selfish ambition, reputation, praise of man. Whose glory is in their shame. The very thing they think they're going to cash in on is going to be their shame and their demise and their judgment in the day of the Lord. And in that, he says... Who set their minds on earthly things? 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, last couple verses, here's the crux. My beloved brothers, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown in the day of the Lord, the reward at the end of those who've endured. So stand firm in the Lord with all you have. My beloved, I urge Yodia and urge Sintik to live in harmony in the Lord, to stand in agreement in the arena when the lions are coming. That's what it means. He's going on to talk about the athletic arena where you're fighting with every point of your being to make it in the event in fighting off beasts or gladiators and he's saying to two sisters in the Lord, live in harmony. How foolish would it look like if you were in the arena about to be martyred and you're fighting and bickering? Have you not dealt with your ambition yet? And he says, indeed, comrade, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who've shared my wrestling match with all my being, my arena Olympic game, even the Olympic understanding, Struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice. Their names are in the book of life. In closing, Paul says this. I, don't, I want to close this with this. Self-denial is not a me and Jesus thing. It's not even a me and my brothers in Christ thing only. It's a me before the world displayed as a witness. Paul said this, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. But if I do, I have nothing to boast in. Why? Because I need the gospel. So when I go to the lost world, it's not so hard to take those ivory steps down from my throne to try to meet with this lowly peasant that I've graduated five, six stairs from and say, will you come to Jesus? If you do, you can come up and you can reign with me in this life and be up here in a piety with a throne and I'll even give you a robe and a scepter. That's why the Gospel is so difficult to share. Because we don't know it. We've moved away from it. We've graduated it. We've been sanctified completely. Heaven's here on the earth. We're just pulling it down to the degree we want to because it depends on us to bring the Messiah to the earth. Wait a minute, the Messiah is me. Oh no. God, I repent. How did you become me and I become you in the wrong way? Before the end of the age, here I am, found as a king, and the apostles were a spectacle to the world and the angels. So Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may be a partaker of it. Let that ruin your theology. I want to do everything for the sake of the gospel so that I don't move away and somehow attain to some elite self-righteous status where I don't think I still need the gospel today. 
and therefore I have no witness, it's an anti-witness before the world, of declaring that I don't need God's righteousness. It's all about perceiving God's righteousness. And this is what it means that I may know Him. It's a desperate cry for God to help you to navigate, come out from your wickedness and the world's temptation around you and all the hindrances even in the church and say, God, I want to know You so I can be found in You in the end of the age at the day of the Lord. I don't want to get lost in me and try to prove that I have anything to give to You and in the end you say, I never knew You. Let's pray. God, here we are as one little piece of dust, each of us. And even together, we're not even a fraction of the sands in the entire earth. Here we are, a tiny little conference in one little state and one little nation on this one little globe. And we're saying, Daddy, help. Daddy, I need a glass of water. Daddy... Can you make me some lunch? Daddy, can you tell me how to keep my emotions stable so that I can actually fall asleep? We're like a little child and we say, I don't have it in me, but I'm following my daddy. I know that he's got a plan to work everything for good in the end, and I know that a lot of the good that he's going to work in the end is getting all the bad out of me all my life. And this is what it means to love and to keep your commandments. So God, pierce our heart with this truth in a way that only you can do by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.